Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Cherish Malloran, Reverend DJ Cherish the Love, and you are listening to Primary Food on Heritage Radio Network. So before I forget, let me tell you how to reach out to me and get my attention on social media, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at DJ Cherish the Love, that is spelled love, L-U-V, and hashtag using primary food, heritage underscore radio, and hashtag rev love. And what exactly is primary food? I learned this great concept in nutrition school at IIN, the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, that the food you eat, you know, the stuff we put in our mouths and chew and enjoy, we consider that secondary food. Primary food is everything else in life that nourishes us before we sit down and eat. And that's stuff like enjoying music, playing music, producing music, reading a book, hanging out with friends, cooking food, a great job, exercise, stuff like that. And I'm so glad I learned this concept because it was the high quality primary food that I kept in my life while going through chemotherapy last year that kept me happy and healing my cancer. So Primary Food is produced by Heritage Radio Network, a non-profit member-supported radio station devoted to all things food. Help keep Heritage Radio Network alive by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate now, and I'll love you forever. So today, we are talking about music as our primary food, hence the background music that I've got in the back here. It's a track called I, Mommy, created by today's guest, today's show, How Music Feeds Our Disco Funky Soul. Our guest, Dan Freeman, a bassist producer and one of the world's experts on Ableton Live and its uses in live performance. As a bassist, Dan has performed and toured extensively on three continents. He has a studio in Brooklyn where he primarily produces New York City Electro House Disco and records bass for other DJ producers. He also teaches electronic music production at NYU's Clive Davis Institute and travels around the world giving courses in Ableton Live. He went to Harvard University where he's studied history and enjoys writing on the political and social roots of disco, funk, house, and hip-hop, and he's right next to me. Hey! What's up, Dan? How you doing? So this track, tell us about this track. Hi, Mommy. Hey, Mommy. Yeah, this was actually a collaboration I did with a really fantastic DJ, uh, DJ Nutritious, who was a house disco DJ. And it's funny, because this was written actually right after coming back from uh, Colombia, in uh, 2012, and uh, maybe that's, uh, I guess, while well, I speak Spanish fluently, um, 
I'm Latino. Uh, but who knows what inspired it. But the, um, we basically were, wanted to write some funky new disco. And I just had gotten a new Moog synthesizer. Ooh. So we had yes. to use that as a lead. Oh. And I'm also a big vocoder nerd. So that's uh, me on Ableton's vocoder. Wow. Yes. Wow. So that's a real Moog. That's not like a synth, like a, a fake Moog. No, no, no. Oh. This is a, it's a Moog little fatty. Yeah. I'm still in love with today. Oh my God. Do you put it in bed with you? Uh, if I could, <laughs> you know, I, I would marry it. <laughs> You propose to your instruments. Uh, my instruments, my studio, I'm sure your studio is similar. I have so many, so much gear and instruments Absolutely. and just XLR cables and power cables, so much. I know. But it's never enough. I know. And it, <laughs> the weird thing with those cables is they just have a way of kind of tangling. I like call it, it spaghetti. Exactly. It's, a, it's like kind of like an endless battle to keep them apart, but somehow they seem to find each other. Yeah. Um, just last night, I DJed a wedding. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I organized all of these cables, but somehow they all got tangled again. It's just the way it is. So what is your process when you create a track like this? Well, when we actually created uh, this particular track, um, actually, I find kind of one interesting way to work is to start with a reference track, um, the track that we really like. And I think in this case, the track that we were really digging on um, was called It's a Boogie by the Uptown Funk Empire. <clears throat> so cool. we're, so we, we decided, okay, we're going to take a look at this track. Um, you know, generally, I produce in Ableton, so in Ableton's arrangement view, we actually kind of like sketched out the form of the track. So we're saying, okay, it lasted this long. Kind of it went from, you know, section A to section B, you know, over this much time. And so in a sense, like, I find like a really creative way to work is actually to start with the end and oh. and so envision the end, and then you kind of it's almost like you fill in the I've sections. I've never heard that before. Yeah. I'm going to try that. And Ableton, I mean, you know, tell people who are listening what Ableton is, what their what their competitors are, you know, options sure. are, and and why you like it. I I love Ableton. I use uh, the Push to the Live, and I just finished the um, Dead Mouse Master Course, and he's using Ableton. Nice, nice, nice. It was very, very cool. So yeah. just tell us what that is. Sure. I mean, <clears throat> I, I think there are several what, what we call DAWs, or digital audio workstations, um, that essentially are softwares to, software to both record music and to uh, sequence. And, and, you know, the fact is that they're all great. I mean, you can make great music with all of them. Ableton is one that was invented in 2001, so it's actually one of the newer ones. Uh, and it has it had a it has a very unique workflow because traditionally these programs they're kind of like musical scores they move from left to right and you kind of construct music over time like you would with a score. Ableton kind of like changed the game for a couple reasons. First of all, it created this view that looks like kind of like an Excel spreadsheet, mm -hmm. um, which allows you instead of kind of always thinking on this kind of left right linear timeline in music, to basically create all kinds of loops and throw different ideas, but not necessarily have to stick to a timeline. Um, and the other thing too is it was specifically designed for live the live performance of electronic music. Um, so. Its flow is just incredible. I find it it's just like kind of an idea producing machine. I love it personally. I mean, if music is food, Ableton is like my very well organized kitchen <laughs> where I cut things up. Uh, I feel like a short order cook yeah. when I work in Ableton because you're able to take clips from something longer and really just manipulate it oh, in yeah. every way possible. So 
you know, whatever you've got in you, you have the tools to execute it and surprise yourself. A lot of times I go in with something I think I'm going to make and I come out with something so different and so awesome. Oh, absolutely. All the time, right? So how does producing music and playing music feed your soul? How does it, that's a really good question. I mean, I think like, you know, this is something that I've thought of a lot because, you know, my education wasn't, I didn't go to a conservatory. Um, I, went, I went to Harvard and I studied history. So there was always kind of this, like most of my classmates, I suppose I could have gone on to, you know, some much more lucrative profession. Um, and, you know, had a very kind of pleasant upper middle class life. So I think at some level, like people that do this and stick with it, and especially in New York City, which is, which is quite a kind of, can be a brutal artistic environment. I, I think there's a kind of like a level of insanity involved, um, meaning that you are so crazy about this art and you're so crazy about music that you just cannot envision yourself living without it. And just life without it would just seem, I don't know. You would starve. Yeah, you'd starve. It's almost like a desert or something. It just provides kind of such a richness. And, you know, there are certain people out there that are that nuts. And obviously we know because we're in this community. Yeah, we have a lot of similar friends. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That they're determined to, you know, make it work. And and for me, it's like I have to do something musical every day on some level, whether it's create music, whether it's write about music, whether it's play my bass, listen to music. What's, what's the first thing you did today that was musical? The first thing that I did today, um, I just finished a my first DJ mix, actually. Ah, uh, yeah. So, That's just speaking to my DJ heart. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, I, I've been envious of DJs for a long time. Um, so I decided, you know, it, it was time to kind of dive into that world. So I, this morning, you know, pretty much right upon waking up, I pulled it up and I kind of gave it a listen back and... You know, because I spent so much time on it in the last couple of days. Oh, and so, there's so much you and I are going to talk about that. Totally. <laughs> I love that. And you're going on tour. Are you going on as, tour under your name, Dan Freeman, or going as comics? Well, it's interesting. When I, when now, I, comics is spelled capital C, zero, M, one, X. That's right. Yeah, okay. That's right. <laughs> so I'm going, actually, I'm doing kind of an interesting tour. Um, you know, for, I, for the last several years, <clears throat> I've done a lot of teaching of Ableton. I'm an Ableton certified trainer. I <clears throat> taught for years at Dubspot in New York, and now I teach at the Clive Davis Institute at NYU. So I created this uh, platform, which is a website uh, called the Brooklyn Digital Conservatory. And so what the Brooklyn Digital Conservatory does is it brings instructors, but we really look for kind of like some of the best artist instructors, which is actually very hard to find. I mean, it's very hard to find artists that can teach Oh. or teachers that are also fantastic artists. That's interesting. So we try to find uh, these people and bring them to, right now we're focusing on Latin America. And I guess for me, Latin America was kind of a natural place to enter because my family background is Nicaraguan and I speak Spanish, so I can teach in Spanish as well. Um, so what I'm doing is we're doing like a, <clears throat> a tour doing Ableton workshops in seven different countries. We're going to wow. start in... Uh, the first workshop will be in Colombia. Then we're going to go to Costa Rica. Um, then we're going to go up to Guatemala, uh, Nicaragua, uh, Panama, Chile, and end in Brazil. That is amazing. So the next tour you do, I'm going to find my way into that. Oh, there's some <laughs> amazing people and amazing things you that say. That sounds just so incredible. So 
When do you leave for that? That's uh, happening like in a minute. Yeah, I leave Tuesday, next Tuesday at 5 like a.m. Next week. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And, and I'm just so curious because, you know, I fantasize about touring. I don't know even what that means. But what are the logistics of setting up a tour? I mean, I've been touring now for, as i got to say, like 20 years. Um, so I've done all kinds of touring. Um, Broadway shows, I've played in bands, artists, et cetera, et cetera. This is a kind of a unique tour because, first of all, I have a lot of power in setting it up because I'm the director of the conservatory which is great so I can say pick my cities and from years of touring I was never a fan of like one-off shows going like being one city one night and then a second city a second night my favorite tours were always the tours where I could stay like a week to 10 days in one city because then you really get to know people you get to know the city so the way I set this tour up is we're doing courses that will last roughly a week in each of these places so and every time we do give a course, we also set up a concert with local artists. So I'll be playing in each one of these, doing either playing with a band or doing kind of like a solo uh, live electronic music set. Or in Costa Rica in a month, I'll actually be playing with uh, Matthew Garrison, who's a pretty well-known jazz bass player mm. um, here in New York. I'll be bringing him down. And so, and then I'm looking also, I'm going to be doing some uh, DJ gigs uh, as well. So, again, it's it's a very kind of unique type of tour because I think typically artists don't do educational tours that are mixed in with uh, artistic tours as well. And how do you set up the venues and the locations and plan it out and uh, finance it? Yeah, well, it's it's really financed mainly through the courses. And so what I do is I find basically local partners who are generally like uh -huh. DJ production schools. And the thing is in these markets, the DJ production schools essentially also tend to be the people that are DJs in the big clubs. They know the bookers, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it, it's basically the tour is financed more through the um, Brooklyn Digital, you know, people signing up through the courses through the Brooklyn Digital Conservatory. Now, that being said, <clears throat> I am looking for additional funding for this tour because the issue with Latin America, and it's really part of my dream, is to not only connect kind of these places, and essentially like myself, who is this kind of strange mix of American and mm -hmm. Latino and has roots in Nicaragua, but also in the States. But to connect these different communities in the United States and Latin America, one issue, though, is that even though we price the courses very affordably, I mean, we have a partnership with Ableton so they get licenses, et cetera, and by U.S. standards, they're very affordable, still a lot of people in Latin America cannot afford them, very talented mm. kids. Mm. Um, so what I'm hoping to do is I'm looking for other sources of funding um, who may want to kind of give scholarships in each of these places to kids that otherwise just couldn't afford to take the course. Um, and so we can kind of expand the reach even further. How can someone reach out to you and donate if they are hearing this and they say they want to be a part of that? Um, I think the best way would be to get in touch with me through the Brooklyn Digital Conservatory. And so the website is www.bkdigicon.com. It's awesome. We're going to take a little musical break, another little piece produced by Dan, and then we're going to talk about your influences. Great. Thank you. 
We're here with Dan. Okay, Dan, you know, first of all, shout out to some of the people we know. DJ Baby Love for hooking uh. us up. And our friend Russell Graham, who is the keyboardist for Chic. Yes. Nell Rogers, um, right-hand man in the studio. Right, so tell me about your influences. Well, tell me about this track. It's pretty fierce. Did you compose this in Ableton also? And Yeah, this was such um, as a remix of an old uh, Benny King song called uh, Star in the Ghetto. It's actually a very slow song. It's about 97 BPM. And so what I did on this, and actually what a lot of producers do, is that you, know, I take, you take the track in Ableton. Ableton has amazing abilities to kind of adjust tempo so i adjusted it up to about 116 which is kind of standard you know kind of like disco funk tempo and then around it i built uh the beats for it uh, and i also played bass on it so I, it needed some more umph in the low end so i basically just recorded recorded a bass line I love it. You're like, it needed some more me. <laughs> so I put myself into it. It's wonderful. I love that so much. Okay. Now, Dan has written a three-part series online about New York City disco and house basics. It's, it's a really wonderful... Tell people where they can read this because it's so thorough. We're going to talk about this for sure, the rest sure. of the show because there's so much history involved. And clearly, you're a musical historian that must also feed your soul too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big history nerd, and uh, history, there's really only two things that I think I'm capable of doing, which is doing music and history. <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty inept at everything else. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I, I mean, it was, it, basically the '70s and kind of you know the, the incredibly creative environment of New York uh, in that in that period has always kind of fascinated me because. In the 70s, really, like, out of New York, you saw, like, the birth of, like, house, uh, disco, and hip-hop. Uh, so these kind of really kind of styles that would change the world. Um, so I was just fascinated in why New York in the 70s would produce so much, you know, just this kind of, like, wealth of musical creativity. So, and also, again, I'm kind of writing for my friends in Latin America, that maybe you know aren't quite as familiar with these stories, so I decided I would focus on three kind of New York City producers. Um, so part one, and you can find the posts actually on the Brooklyn Digital Conservatory blog. So part one was uh, Nah Rogers, Bernard Edwards, and so what I did is I talked a little bit about the background of New York in the '70s, and then I list out their ten must-know tracks. Uh, I just finished part two, which is on Larry Levan and the Paradise Garage. There I talk about, you know, uh, David Mancuso and The Loft. Uh, but in each of these, I'm also giving a little bit of kind of uh, social and political history as well. Um, in the first one, I talked about New York's financial crisis, essentially why the city essentially disintegrated. Uh, in the second one, I talked about uh, basically gay liberation and how you know fundamentally important it was to the creation of the nightlife uh, scene in New York in the 70s. Um, and so, yeah, I talk about Larry Levan, The Paradise Garage. And then part three is going to be uh, Patrick Adams, uh, who I'm going to interview on Monday. That's so incredible. So you said you're only good at two things, but I'm going to add a third one. You're very good. No, you're excellent at educating. Oh, thank you. So we're going to talk about, you know, let's talk about this first part, part one. Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards, obviously, your influences, not just for composing disco and, and so on, and but for bass. 
Oh, absolutely. So tell us about that. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think if we talk about Bernard Edwards specifically, his base has been so influential um, musically, and it, it's, it's almost entered like the kind of like the musical DNA of our culture, even though probably if you ask the average person who Bernard Edwards was, nobody, you know, most people wouldn't know who he was. But there's something so perfect about the lines, the sound, yeah, um, <clears throat> you know, the frequencies that he played at, the musicality of the lines. If you think about it, like the first hip-hop song ever, um, Sugar Hill Gang's uh, Rapper's Delight, was based, or was done over Bernard Edwards' bass line. It's the bass line from Sheik's uh, Good Times. Um, whole style of, of French house music, all they do is electronically emulate Bernard Edwards' bass sound, like Daft Punk, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, on their last album, uh, Random Access Memories, they were really... They uh, they got, I think it was Nathan East turn played bass, but essentially emulating Bernard Edwards, how Bernard Edwards would have done it. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, his, there's just, and really kind of the sound of Chic in many ways is, is that interplay between his bass and, of course, Nile Rogers' rhythm guitar. But like you said, it's really interesting how that can be interwoven into the fabric of a genre of music and for decades and decades endlessly yes. like you think about the drumming of funky drummer yes, you attribute yeah. it to james brown and not the drummer absolutely <laughs> it's it's really amazing and you mentioned you know when you were talking just now and and i read your piece also you talked about the social and economic context that that kind of birthed birthed this type of music yeah how does that happen and how did that happen and specifically in this um you know, conversation of disco and house. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because, you know, I, I feel that music is just something that is never created in a vacuum. Um, you know, and and I guess, you know, having been again in New York for almost twenty years and having you know kind of lived through some of the pretty epic events of the last two decades, I've always been fascinated on how some of these events, you know, whether it's nine eleven, whether it was the wars. Um, have you know affected how music is made and kind of the outlook of artists in New York? So stepping back into the seventies, which you know obviously I was, I was too young to remember. Uh, I did exist, but kind of barely. You know, <laughs> um, the in the seventies there were a couple things going on, which really kind of like darkened the mood of New York, um, but interestingly enough, made it a very creative city because it was affordable. The first is that mm, the U- affordable huge the the u.s basically had gotten involved in the war in vietnam and vietnam you know the effects of this war kind of just rippled through american society first of all it fundamentally bankrupted on some level the u.s government um because the u.s government was just pouring money into this you know real catastrophe um but at the same time it had expanded social programs as well and the tragedy is that the social programs would be cut back mm-hmm. because it, all this was unaffordable. Right. Um, right. In doing so, because of the debt, it led to kind of a deflated currency. Um, and I talk about it in the article, but in 1971, Richard Nixon, because other nations wanted to, at the time, you could actually submit your dollars and get gold back. Believe it or not, we were on the gold standard. So what happened is because the dollar was becoming worthless, um, nations wanted to get gold back from the U.S. gold reserves. So Richard Nixon just in 1971 said, that's it. You know, dollars cannot be exchanged for gold anymore. And 
in doing so, he essentially, between that and between the OPEC oil embargo in 1973, essentially like tanked the U.S. economy for a decade. So you have this period of like stagnant economic growth, high inflation, which is known as stagflation. Um, you also, during this period, have the deindustrialization, which is really kind of an issue that's still affecting us. I mean, you can almost see like this deindustrialization, which began in the late 60s, early 70s, as kind of leading in a straight line to like the election of Donald Trump, as in the depression of whole areas of the United States, the loss of jobs. But New York is actually one of the first places to get hit. So suddenly areas of Brooklyn, which had been formerly like industrial powerhouses, um, the factories closed down. So there's suddenly these huge areas of abandoned factories, oh, yes. no jobs. This explains it. And, um, and then the other thing, too, is so, the, so you have this kind of economic crisis. And New York suffers so much because as the factories go, the jobs go, areas are abandoned, um, tax revenues shrink. And the city is so broke that in 1975, they actually declare bankruptcy, more or less, and have to go to the federal government to get bailed out. And and so the federal government gives them some money, but New York cuts back its services. So suddenly, like, you know, public transportation, you know, the subways just disintegrate, um, cleaning streets, all uh, you know, policing, this. all of this kind of stuff just gets, gets but cut. But like you said, so much art and creativity was happening. I grew up in the era of the L trains yes. being completely covered in... In art. Yes. I call it art. It was really beautiful. Even as a child, I'd see a train go by and just go, wow. Yeah. I mean, so as I say, so you have this, you have the economic decay and you also do have the city becomes dangerous too. And, and it's hard, you know, I think different people will argue why New York suddenly in the late sixties became dangerous. Part of it may have been, as you know, Malcolm X famously said, the chickens coming home to roost, being that the U.S. was inflicting so much violence in the Vietnam War and sending kind of these 18, 19-year-old kids over to fight. Some of these kids are coming back, you know, only 19, 20 years old, having seen some pretty you know, gruesome stuff. Um, and as happens, you know, classically in wars, there's just kind of a level of violence that they return with. A lot of these kids come back, they're addicted to drugs. Um, the drug trades explode. So there's just a level of violence in U.S. society, again, after Vietnam, that just it goes crazy until the early 90s. In your article, you make a great point that uh, in the chaotic New York City, music and art flourished and disco house was born. But that didn't just happen in New York. Obviously, Chicago, too. Empty Absolutely. warehouses Absolutely. Um, created that Yeah. house music. We'll talk about that in the next piece. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you said that hard times produce great art. It's it's interesting. I think, you know, obviously it depends on the level of, of hardness. Um, but I think in New York in the 70s, you're, as you said before, the cheapness of the city mm-hmm. was key. Because as people left, especially as, you know, the middle class and uh, started leaving New York for the suburbs, suddenly you could find cheap rents. And cheap rents are good for artists. That's exactly why my parents left Manhattan. Really? Because... And yeah. I'm still in Manhattan, and I'm so glad. Yeah. Because things bounced back in ways you couldn't imagine. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. So that is so fascinating, because I'm a native New Yorker, and I got to kind of witness it. And, and understanding what was happening while I was in it, I didn't. Yeah. But looking back now and seeing people write about it, I go, wow, yeah. that's what was going on. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's mind-blowing, but you've been here 20 years. I've been here 20 years, yeah. But you're fascinated about it. Have you always been fascinated about this, or did it just kind of develop like, wow, being a historian? Yeah, I, I you know, oddly enough, I 
have always been fascinated with the period of the 70s. I, I just feel I was born in the wrong decade. Again, <laughs> I was born in the 70s, but I probably should have been born in the 50s so I could actually experience this. Because um, it's just the music and the culture is amazing. But no, like I said before, I, I'm just fascinated by how how music, how artists respond to social, um, you know, pressures and economic pressures and political turmoil. And I've seen it. And, you know, who knows? We may be in for another kind of bumpy ride here. So be interesting uh, to see that what comes out of it. How do we influence people to get more creative right now? Because you know, I think we're going to be going through something. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to say if we... I mean, I, I think as a creative person, you know, you, as David Byrne once said, you, you can... Your job is to create... Your job is to create... Um, and I think as a creative person, you're, you are influenced by what's around you. And if, 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 if it's a dark period, then the darkness will seep into the work. Um, and often. sometimes artists will create something as a reaction to what's going on. Yes. Like if you could tell us, I know this story very well because I have worked with Nile Rogers. but if you could tell the story about the song Le Freak oh, yes, and yeah. what it originally was named. Sure, sure. And what that song was a reaction to, this is a great story. Yeah, well, Le Freak... Uh, now Rogers and Bernard Edwards had actually been invited by uh, Grace Jones to go hang out at Studio 54. Um, so they went and they stood in line, and apparently she had forgotten to leave their name at the door. So they were so pissed off, they went home and wrote a song called Fuck Off. And so Fuck Off then was changed to Freak Out. And, and that's the actual song that we know. And, and <laughs> like I said, you know, like creativity comes from angst yeah. and you know because sometimes you feel things it's like what do you do with it absolutely if yeah. you have music as a tool yes you exercise your frustration through music so do you have any other thoughts about this this particular era that you want to put out there because there's so much to say about the about the uh, the 70s yeah i mean another kind of thing about the 70s um looking at it, is it on some level and i say this as a musician myself as a bass player um it's the high point of session musicianship um, because if you wanted to make a dance record really up to roughly about 1980, there's no drum machines <clears throat> that were typically used. So that means your rhythm section just had to kick ass. Ah, uh, yeah. You had to just have incredibly grooving drummers, incredibly grooving bass players. And the way in during the disco era, I mean, there was so much production up to about roughly 1980 where the whole thing just collapsed that these musicians were working, uh, like the studios were going around the clock. And so just the level of virtuosity of these rhythm sections, and which is why I think it's even today it's so attractive to basically take disco tracks and remake them because mm -hmm. they have a level of humanness and warmth and groove Absolutely. that you just don't find. And as much as I love electronic music, it's just quite the same. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a second. I mean, it's so, it's, it's inspirational to sample. Absolutely. Now let's talk about the legality of that and yeah. <laughs> the challenges of that. Now me as a DJ, you know, I'm always kind of hovering. Now I worked for Sony and I got to see a lot of legal things pass, fly by me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get scared of it actually. And I did come from the Napster world, the Napster era. I'm that, yeah. that much older. Yeah. <laughs> so I get worried about things like that. And when I make mixes and put it on SoundCloud and things like that, um, there are other DJs that tell me that they got stuff taken down. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, what should we do as creative people? Just do it and it doesn't matter or what? It's, you know, it, and it's, it's really, really tricky um, kind of subject because on one hand, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I totally believe that 
musicians, and I myself have stuff out there, and I like to be paid for what I've created uh, because I think as a musician producer, in a sense, it's your retirement fund, uh, the royalties you get. <clears throat> On the other hand, as you can hear from these tracks, I love to sample and to take pieces of, of sound and kind of reinvent and recreate them. Mm. You know, I can't say I, I have the answer. I think there's got to be some freedom because, I mean, you can take you know what of like whole genres whether it's like drum and bass which was created using the Amen breakbeat uh samples a lot of hip-hop yeah. which where you built these incredibly creative kind of musical forms based off countless samples. absolutely There's so many that aren't that haven't even reached our ears and never will absolutely. but they were healthy expressions for those people absolutely and the thing is the sampler itself i find of all the electronic instruments is, is hands down to me the most creative one so yeah i don't i don't quite have the answer i mean it's probably a mix you know if you're i mean i think the way it's operating now is basically you you create something you put it out and just if you're going to use a sample you either have to pay the person or just expect that you're not going to make any money and if it, if it makes money it will, will go to that person which i think is probably fair um at this case in this case you kind of do it to make artistic kind of statements I have a friend who once told me, if you're being sued for that, what a, what a lucky problem to have. Absolutely. And I'm Absolutely. still like, I don't want to get sued. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to hear a little bit from our sponsor, and we're going to take another music break. Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh cheese curds. Or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company. The operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com. And as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. Don't hesitate 
love that track. Tell us, tell us about that track. Sure. So what is that? This is this is actually a collaboration, and I give a big shout out here to um, a frequent collaborator of mine, uh, DJ EM. And so uh, DJ, uh, I've done a lot of work with him. He's a fantastic DJ, very creative guy. And I actually love working with DJs as a producer because DJs, like you guys, actually have an intrinsic sense of what works on the dance floor. Mm. So it's so cool for the DJ to hear something and be like, ah, it's going to work, it's not going to work. And then as a producer, you kind of like execute it. You know, that comes from fear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it comes from not wanting, you know, not having people on the dance floor. We're like, no, yeah. no that'll work. No, that, that won't work. Yeah, yeah, it's funny that you say that because I think about that a lot. Floor, you know, like floor fillers and things like that. Well, I mean, I think, you know. That would be it, a good one for me. Well, so I think probably, I mean, isn't it? I think as a DJ, it's pretty much your job to keep that floor, yeah, control that floor. It is. Yeah. I have lots of stories. And I remember someone telling me once, you aren't a good DJ until you have cleared the floor many times <laughs> in your life and learned. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a really great story. I'll tell you more about that. Sure. So, so to have somebody there telling you, you know, with that intrinsic sense uh, is great. And so it's like, as a producer, you know, in a sense, I'm responding to what he's doing and giving him musical ideas. And then, um, so Edgar, which is uh, DJ uh, EM's name, he brought in a fantastic singer. Uh, her name is uh, Natasha Jules. And so we cut this track in my studio in, uh, in Brooklyn. That's fantastic. And, you know, you produce this stuff and more of your influences like Larry Levan. Let's uh, yeah. let's talk about that. Sure. sure. Part two of your your series here. Absolutely. I think well, with Larry Levan in that part of the series, like what I really try to focus on was a little bit. I talked about the economic and political aspects uh, in part one. Part two is the social aspects. And I think when you're talking about New York in the 70s, it's impossible to really get without understanding uh, gay liberation. Uh, so I actually began that piece with uh, Stonewall uh, and the events of the uh, Stonewall riots in 1969. And then talked about, like, I mean, essentially, up until Stonewall, the New York, it was illegal uh, for two men or two women to dance together at any venue. So they had a couple places like Stonewall, which were basically owned by the mafia. And the reason that the mafia owned all the gay bars at the time is that they basically paid off the cops. Um, but the mafia, to be in a space owned by the mafia, also had its own pitfalls because the mafia made money by picking out wealthy gay men who worked on Wall Street, taking photos of them there, and then blackmailing them. So it was basically, um, you know, at the time to, to be... Um, you know, gay in New York was, and to go to these places, I mean, you're dealing, first of all, with the cops that would typically raid them, you know, take people away, uh, jail them, or the mafia who was there to blackmail you. And um, so one of the results of the Stonewall um, events was that there was a movement uh, within the community to create their own spaces. Mm. And so this is where kind of uh, David Mancuso's loft comes in that's really incredible and you know the the ripple effect of that and and frankie knuckles going to chicago and then just spreading all around and across the ocean and so on it is amazing to think of the musical influence on gay rights in this era and continually on till today that's major yeah and what's interesting too is um that's interesting but maybe side stories like when i first came to the city uh, back in the late 90s um, and I got into electronic music. Uh, I was very, I would play a lot of these parties. I mean, this is now 
and they were some of the most beautiful and kind of creative spaces that I think I've ever worked in. But um, going back to the 70s, I, I think with David Mancuso and his loft, I mean, David Mancuso fundamentally created modern club culture. I mean, the whole idea of having like a very high fidelity sound system playing I records I on it. I knew that in person. Yeah. Because I've just heard legacy stories from people who were there. I know. And it's, it's a shame because he, you know, he recently passed away a couple, only a couple months ago. Um, also, the whole idea of a record pool, that was his idea. Right. The whole idea of exclusivity in the club, mm-hmm. um, you know, essentially um, to basically curating the people there as well as the music, a light show. Mm-hmm. All of these things were created in the loft and then taken by places like the Paradise Garage or Studio 54. It's amazing. I wonder if if he had a vision and wanted to complete it or if it just kind of organically evolved as we need more, we need the visual aspect, we need this. I just wonder, you know, because these things, there's so many components that go into an incredible, this is history. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, my guess is it was probably just the organic visions of creative visions, but I don't know. You know. Completion is a, a big topic for me, and I, I'm impressed, and I love I loved when any producer gives me completed tracks because I'm entering my producing chapter of my life. And now you can help me with this. Like, I will start songs, uh-huh. and then something happens, and I'm like, I can't finish it. Oh, yeah, I know. So you experience that, too. That's oh, not just absolutely. me. absolutely. Okay, so out of 100 songs that you start, how many yeah. do you think make it to someone like me? <laughs> <laughs> gets to air it. Oh, a pretty small percentage. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I needed to hear that. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, I do wish I was more, um, you know, prolific as a producer. But I mean, I can be, interestingly enough, like, I think one of the greatest, I actually do also music for, you know, say like commercials or corporate films, which they give you like 24, 48 hours to write a piece of music. Ooh, yeah. And interestingly enough, like when you have that kind of deadline, it's amazing how productive you can be. Yeah, I, d- I don't doubt that because yeah. I am, as a creative person, I operate really great under stress. Absolutely. But then that means I need stress to operate. And uh, no, I don't, uh, I don't like that part. <laughs> I know. I, I think often what helps uh, to create, to finish tracks, it, well, first of all, collaborations are always great. Or, I need to do that more. Yeah, that's because then somebody you have somebody else who's on your ass. But the other thing too is, if you kind of take a track, what I find if I take a track and then send it to people and say, "Hey, I'm about to finish this," mm-hmm. then I, I'm really embarrassed if I don't finish it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I need more accountability to, partners. Account, exactly, accountability is another great yeah, one. Maybe you and I should collaborate on uh, something, and, and maybe a year from now we'll be so surprised what we have. I, w- uh-huh. I, I would love to. I'd love to uh, get get some See, tracks. We just put that set. on air. Yep. <laughs> so we're gonna have to do that. <laughs> yep. That's amazing. Well, part three hasn't been published yet, but just tell us what the topic is. Sure. So part three is going to be on kind of another legendary uh, New York producer, Patrick Adams. And um, Patrick Adams has been responsible for so many tracks, um, both classic disco and and hip hop. So he is, he's still here living in New York. And so uh, with uh, DJ Baby K Love, uh, we're going to go up and interview him on Monday, right before I leave to Latin America. Awesome. So that so that one will be coming out in a couple of weeks when I get a chance down there. Or maybe I'll have time in Costa Rica to write it up. Wow, that's just so fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Dan Freeman. Thank you so much. Have you had a great time? We learned so much from you. Um, I'm going to close the show with... Uh, a track you sent me that's actually a cover of one of my favorite songs under the Milky Way. 
and uh, tell us about this before we start to sure sure yeah this is this track was actually this was actually one of my older brother's favorite tracks uh, growing up as a kid in the 80s uh, so I always had this song in my head and I just I've always loved it decided to do an electronic version but my favorite part of the track is actually um, the vocals of uh, Jenny Electric who is Jenny Electric um, she was a singer uh, she is still the singer of a band called Dynasty Electric and they used to throw in the, the OOs uh, some of the best loft parties in Brooklyn. And these were incredible parties. Uh, they were called the New Sonic Loft Parties. 200 people would gather. It was pretty oh, janky, illegal loft. Sweet. But they would set up a stage, um, good sound, and like some of like the, just the coolest bands in Brooklyn uh, in this era. Uh, you know, people from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs would come. Yeah, awesome. Chai, Chai, awesome. All the stuff would come and uh, play those parties. So I mean, she's a great singer, and so she does vocals on this. Wow. Okay, again, what's your URL? Any social media handles? Sure, sure. Uh, you can find my own stuff is at well, Dan. It's danfreeman.com. Or if you're interested in learning more about the Brooklyn Digital Conservatory, again, it's bkdigicon. So it's bkdigicon.com. Thank you, Dan. And here's Under the Milky Way.
Um, for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.